Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Before the lesson this morning, we'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Good morning. You'll need to get your Bible. I hope you came hungry for the Word of God. Get a Bible that you can see, and if you don't have one of your own, scoot up closer to your neighbor and be sure that you can see one for the sermon. The sermon will mean a lot more to you if you can follow along. I want to make reference to a number of passages as we go through this lesson. I love to go to the ocean. I, I always thought that If possible, uh, with some degree of frequency through your life, maybe once a year if you don't live on the coastline, but if you live inland like we do, about once a year you need to just take a look at the ocean. There's just something about the vastness of it, the unchangeableness of it. Look at this first slide. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 describes our Lord in a similar way. There's just this... This wonderful reality that he is unchanging, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in verse 5 of that same chapter, you find these words from our Lord, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Andrew did a great job choosing our songs today and I I really wish, you know how I am about this, I, I always wish that We could do the songs and the sermon in the reverse, and someday I'll probably try that, but uh, you're at a disadvantage because I already know what the sermon is about, and so when I sing the songs, why, those things are, are going through my mind, and Andrew just did a terrific job. My song shall ever be, oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. I want you to focus on my song shall ever be. Now, this sermon really comes from half a dozen words that you find from Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. He's in Miletus. Now, he's on his third missionary journey. He's coming down south, and he gets to Miletus. Well, that's not far from Ephesus, so he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come because he wants to talk to them. And in the course of that discussion with those shepherds, the apostle Paul says these words. These things do not move me. As you might assume, he's talking about the kinds of sufferings that he's going through, and he's about to 
endure. He's anticipating those kinds of things. And he says, but these things don't move me. What do you suppose that means? Well, we use that terminology now, I think. And sometimes it's about, I don't know, something sort of small, but we mean that it touches us inside. Cindy took me one time to the to hear the Boston Pops Orchestra, beautiful orchestra. And I'm not so much about listening to orchestral music on the radio, but oh, in person, if you're there and you, you hear those instruments and you feel that percussion, it's just a wonderful thing. And you might leave that concert and say, that was very moving. Or, you know, you, you might, you might hear a, a funeral sermon of a close friend and, and it touches you. What, what was said in that discourse was touching to you. And you might say, I found that very moving. It could even be that sometimes something would be said or something that would, would be done and it moves you to act upon that. And maybe you would change your course of action. And Apostle Paul is talking about those things and he says, these things do not move me. Now, before I I'll go into a list, and I'm going to give you a list of five things that did not move Paul. This is to help us grow in our values and to, I don't know, it gives us a perspective of our own lives, of our own Christianity. These things didn't move him. These are big things. They're big things that, that didn't influence him away from Christianity and away from his faith. How glued down is your faith? These things didn't move me. They won't move me. And then I'm going to talk about four things that did move Paul, and that will be the sermon for this morning. But before we get into that, I want to, I want to make this observation. When Paul says, these things don't move me, it's impressive to me that he's, he's talking about something that he knows about himself. He's already gone through an awful lot for our Lord. He's suffered a great deal for our Lord. I tell you what, all through the centuries, gospel preachers have been able, I think, to make it through some of the challenging times of their work because they look at the Apostle Paul and every one of us, every one of us can say, but I don't have it like Paul. He understood this. He understood what he was saying. But what I want you to see is that the fact that he could make this statement, the fact that he could say, these things don't move me, was a matter of experience. Mrs. Collie and I have been married for, well, quite a number of years now. I really am thankful for that. We married when we were 21. We were just kids, you know. And if you had said to me at that time, do you love her? Of course, I'd have said, yes, I'm marrying her. I didn't, I didn't fully understand love, but I do. I think I understand a lot more now. I love her more now than I ever have. But it's a wonderful thing to be at this age and to be able to look in retrospect at how many years we've been together and say we had the stuff to make a marriage work. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's just a great feeling to me. We had the stuff. We had the stuff to make a marriage work and get through the good times and the hard times. Right? Also, Paul is saying that. It's very much like Genesis 22 and Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain at the instruction of God to, to offer him as a burnt offering before God. And when he comes down from the mountain, and you know how that played out, but as he comes down the mountain, God, God has made the observation, now I know that there's nothing you will withhold from me, but God's not the only one who knows that. Abraham knows it now. I guess when he was going up the mountain, he thought, I can do this, I can do this, I can, but, but until he did it, I don't know that he fully knew, but now he does know. Now hold that thought and bear in mind that what Paul is saying in Acts 20, 24 is to these elders, and he's encouraging them, and he's saying something about himself in reference to the challenges of being a Christian and a gospel preacher. And Paul says, but these things don't move me. 
I love that. There's a security about that and a predictability about the future of what Paul will do because of what he has done. Now, what things? Now, I'm going to come back to, I don't want to start in Acts 20, though. I'm going to start in Galatians 1, and uh, I'm going to make a couple of observations. The first two in our list of five things that did not move Paul are, are not in Acts 20, but then we'll come to Acts 20 for number three. What kinds of things did not move Paul? Here's the first one. Having to risk his, risk his position among his contemporaries. I do not know if women understand this as well as men. I've never been a woman, but I can tell you something about men. We, we operate a great deal in our psyches on the respect of our contemporaries, the people around whom we work. We have something built into us that want, we want to do well and we want the people around us to, to recognize our work. I think it's just something that's in men and perhaps it's in women in a similar way. How much is that worth to you? Mm. How much is it worth? And the Apostle Paul had to give that up in order to be a Christian because his contemporaries would not understand this at all. They didn't understand it. Now, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? It's a profound question. So because you see, that's what a lot of men in religion are trying to do. I mean, in essence, you say, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do religion our way, my way. It's like I'm trying to persuade God, see if I can influence God to change his opinions instead of conforming myself to him. And Paul says, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, he's looking back at his history, his past, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't have it both ways. What's he saying? Now, look, let me tell you something. Paul, Paul had a position. I'm telling you that, that of the Jews and the Jewish leaders, Paul was the upper echelon. He was the elite of the Jews. Got to give it up. They're never going to buy into this, and they didn't. Now, drop down to verse 14 of Galatians 1. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now... Turn a couple of pages over to Philippians chapter 3. I want to start in verse 1. Philippians 3 verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He's talking about the circumcision of the Jews and, and all that's wrapped up in that. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also, as Jews would say, because I have circumcision, because I'm a Jew, because I have Jewish blood pumping through my veins, therefore I'm right with God. No, no, Paul says, wait a minute, wait, don't have confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Strong words. He's not finished. He'll use a stronger one. Ready? 
Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them, are you ready, as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. <laughs> That's, that position he had, that, that respect of the people, those people, contemporaries among him, you can't keep it, Paul, you can't keep it to be a Christian. They won't have it. Those things don't move me. That's what he said. How are you doing on that in your life? How are you doing on that? And that's closely associated to the second one. So let's drop down to the, the next one. Now, on its face, you, you may not see any chronology in the order of these points. I've tried to make them in a chronological order based on which each of these was written. And that was written about 52. In 56 AD is the next one. What, what is it that doesn't move Paul? It's that his contemporaries, not just that he would lose his position, but closely akin to it, is that they would look at him as his foolish, as if he is foolish. How are you doing on that in your life? I think it's always interesting at Christmas time that, that, that people talk so much about the birth of Jesus. And there's a level on which I like that. I don't know when Jesus was born, but I do enjoy people freely talking about Jesus. What's interesting to me is that we like the baby the best. We do. Because that's before he taught us anything. It's when he started teaching. That's when we have the problem with him. And, and the world and the, and the contemporaries of Paul and Judaism were certainly going to look at him like he was nuts. I mean, they're going to hate him enough to kill him. And so here's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to start in verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through wisdom did not know God. That The worldly wisdom, they don't know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that many, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, that is, people who are strong in worldly wisdom. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, that is, in the view of the world, they're weak, to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, I, I think it's very relevant as we go through this lesson that this is so much today. Now, this is not, I, I mean, I think that the things that Paul preached clearly separated him. I know they did from his contemporaries. Again, enough to kill him. But they're the same things that we're wrestling with today. They're really not so very different, are they? I mean, let your mind run over the things Paul talked about, about family and about home. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And wives, be in submission to your own husbands. You think the world doesn't see that as foolishness? 
In fact, it's more than that. They'd see it as insulting. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. First command with a promise that it may be. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You bring them up with the intention of raising Christians. That's what you do. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4. Think the world appreciates that? Oh, but it doesn't stop there. What about sexuality? I mean, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. That sort of excludes a lot of things. It certainly excludes living together before marriage, doesn't it? You think people appreciated that? You get to Romans chapter 1 and it says not only is the practice of homosexuality evil and wrong, and it's, it's that those who approve it, verse 32, Romans 1.32, those who endorse it are doing wrong. Well, you go ahead and go ahead and preach that like the Apostle Paul did, and you see what happens today. I'm telling you, it's just not so much different. The world doesn't appreciate that. And so what happened is that not only he couldn't be at the level he was with his contemporaries, but number two, his contemporaries are going to see him as foolish, and that's how it is today. But that did not move him. It's just what you gotta gotta see. That didn't move him. Who are you? I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus Christ. What if the price tag involves this? I think it's interesting to think about that. You talk about a man about to become a Christian and, and you say, now you need to count the cost of being a Christian. There's a sense in which he can do that. I mean, he can understand that he's repenting of sins and it means changing his life. It may change some of his associations with his contemporaries and all of that. There's another level on which he cannot know what it will cost him. He won't know until he finishes his life. For some people, the cost is very, very high. All right, and higher than others. Now, here's number three. What is it that wouldn't move him? An uncertain future. Now, I want to I take this back now to Acts chapter 20, where we started. An uncertain future. Now, drop down. This is about 56 A.D., and I'm in Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. Now, he's in this discussion with these elders at Miletus. They're from Ephesus. And he says, I see and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. 21 in verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Now, so Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And what he did know is that these prophets in the first century who he was around, uh, who have inspiration from the Spirit would say, it's not going to go good in Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. We're afraid for you, Paul. You stay away from Jerusalem now. An uncertain future didn't move him. He wasn't going to stop. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to go, and from there he's going to go to Rome. There's a couple of different ways I think you could apply this. The first one is that life as a mortal is uncertain. How do you react to that? When I, when I lived in Pulaski, Tennessee, there was a, I had a couple of friends, people I knew, and their lives were connected. They'd gone to school together in Pulaski, and 
They grew up into adults and had wives and children. And one of them had had fallen away from the Lord, and he wasn't faithful to the Lord. And he didn't worship on the Lord's Day like you're doing. He didn't eat the Lord's Supper. He didn't pray. He didn't study. He didn't give of his means. He wasn't part of the family of God anymore. Just he had been. It was something he did before. And one day he was playing baseball, of all things, with some guys, and, and the baseball, I don't know, he just wasn't watching, but it hit him on the head squarely, dropped him on the ground with a concussion. And went to the hospital, and he was in bad shape for a while, and it was nip and tuck. My other friend, who was a faithful Christian, went to visit him with this in mind. Now that he, he really, really knows firsthand that life is uncertain, you could die anytime. That's not pessimism, it's realism. And he, this could happen to you. Now surely you want to come and be right with the Lord. And so he went to this, this friend in the hospital and he made his spiel. He said, here's, here's what I want to talk to you about. And the man in the hospital said, no. He said, you know what? I, I know that life is uncertain now. I got that. I understand it in a, in a new way. I'm going to grab all the fun I can, can out of life and it's not going to include the church. It's not going to be that kind of life. I've got another life. I want all the fun I can have before I die. My friend who was a faithful Christian, several years later, contracted cancer. Pretty serious. Went through lots of treatments, months and months. Today, he is in remission, and, and occasionally we talk. He too faced something in his life that gave him this reality that life is so very uncertain. For him, the, the reaction was completely different. It glued him even tighter to the Lord. I'm so thankful to be a Christian. It's very much like Igor and Valeri that James references and quotes. This thing in Ukraine going on and around Ukraine. And we, I'm so glad James is doing this. And we listen to those and we empathize. We, we sympathize. We put ourselves in their shoes and we try to imagine what it's like. And I'm going to tell you something. They're glad to be Christians. There's great uncertainty about life. Look at these lyrics of this song. We sang this a moment ago. I don't worry over the future, for I know what Jesus said, and today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. All right, so the point is that Paul said, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. That's true, but now that brings us to the next one. Uh, drop down now to in chapter 20 of Acts to verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that change and tribulations await me. Now, it's incidentally, back to verse 24, the next verse, but none of these things move me. So this is in the context. He says, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, there is prophecy coming in from the Holy Spirit that that change and tribulations. Change means prison. Tribulations means anguish. I'm gonna, I'm going to face this. There will be mental and physical pain. And you're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in 23. This is about AD 57. And Paul talks about the kinds of, kinds of persecutions he faced. He finishes this discussion with the elders. He kneels with them and he prays and he sails south. Now here's the fifth one. What doesn't move him, and this is, this is to the max, is martyrdom. 
Here's chapter 21 of Acts in verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed, went on our way, and they accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore, and we prayed. Now drop down to 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something. He he doesn't let this move him. It's not going to move him. Every one of these things is big in its own way. And it's, it's about being separated from his contemporaries. They're no longer going to respect him. He cannot continue in the role that he plays in, in Judaism, in the Pharisees. And he's a big guy. He, nobody's bigger than him. He, he can no longer have that. That doesn't, that doesn't move me. Yeah, but they're going to insult you. They're not going to respect you. I know that's important to people, but that doesn't move me. That doesn't change this. Yeah, but you're going to have insert uncertainty in life. That doesn't move me. In fact, that makes me stronger. Yeah, but, but uncertainty sometimes means that it's going to be bad. I just don't know how bad. Well, that's how it was with Paul. That doesn't move me. But Paul, this is going to mean martyrdom. It's not just that one day you're going to die. We all know that we're going to die. This is about martyrdom. And then Paul says, these things don't move me. Let me ask you a question. In your faith, what is it that is strong enough to move you? And I look and I think about our older Christians who are in this room right now. And you have a benefit. Many of you have been Christians for most all your life. And, and you have an advantage to be able to say, this is what I will do. And you have a, a greater security. I don't mean to be cocky about it. I just mean that you have a greater security because based on your history, there's a predictability about the future. And Paul is, Paul has that. I want us to all be able to say, build into our character, into our value system, into our resolve about Jesus Christ. These things do not move me. They do not. And if they do move me, I need to be afraid of that. Now, quickly, here are four things that did move Paul, that did move him. Number one, his own sense of worthlessness or his sense of his own unworthiness. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying. This is the truth and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Get this now. Of whom I am chief. See, this isn't while he's living in sin. He's not living in sin. He's a great Christian and he's forgiven and he is an apostle and he's giving his life to Jesus Christ. He's reflecting over history and he still carries that. You say, come on now. Does that mean that Jesus wants us to not have a self-esteem? I don't I wouldn't say it that way. I don't, think it's, I don't think that's so much true. It's just that a person's sense of value isn't about himself. It's, it's about that Paul, he would say, I mean, Paul had a lot of courage. Paul, you, you have to have some courage to get up and talk to people and preach to people. And Paul is going to do that a lot, even in controversial, difficult places. But it's not based on his personal self-esteem, his ego. It, it's based on Christ. You want want to know what moves him? It's a sense of his own unworthiness. Two, you may find this interesting. I I do. People in religious error, that that really moves him. So you have Acts 17, 16, and Paul was in Athens, and you'll remember this, and the Bible says in this verse that when he came to Athens, the city was wholly given over to idolatry. 
and his spirit was stirred within him. Isn't that interesting terminology? That's King James. Isn't that interesting terminology? It, it disturbed him. It got to him. It moved him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Because I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They, they leave the righteousness of God and they go about to establish their own righteousness. Now, this is something with which we deal, isn't it? I mean, in our time too. Because the most popular thought about religion that has anything to do with Christ is ecumenicalism. And ecumenicalism means, I'm okay, you're okay. It doesn't really matter. So long as you have some attra- attraction to, uh, attachment to Jesus Christ, so long as you have something, so long as you claim some attachment to Jesus, you're in, you're good. God doesn't care about the rest. Just do your own thing. So long as you don't become an atheist, so long as you don't embrace full-blown atheism, I suppose if you speak his name that you're somehow in. The Bible never did teach that. Never would teach it. People were really religious when Jesus came to the world, to earth. Really religious. But they were religiously wrong. He came to correct that. And so Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. You want to know what moved Paul? It was religious error. How would it be to be inspired of God? We stand for what is right today based on what the Scripture says. And we read it and study it. We comprehend it. We preach it. What would it be like if you had it directly from the Holy Spirit? And then you looked around and people were denying it. It moved him. Three. What moved Paul was the way that Jesus loved us. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5 and 14. This is the King James word. Now, it's, it's this, and Alan read from it a few minutes ago. The love of Christ constrains us. New King James says the love of Christ compels us, which is not a bad translation, but I like constrains better. Either one will work for this. Constrains is used a number of times in Scripture. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And they're going to surround you in Jerusalem, and they're going to press in from all sides. And the word he uses is this word. Press in from all sides. Or you have Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, and the Apostle Paul says, remember, I'm I'm at a straight between two, whether it's better to stay with you or depart and be with Christ. And When he's thinking about that, it seems like you have both things that are very important and it sort of constrains him. It it binds him. One one lexicon, uh, Greek dictionary, talked about this and said it was like a cattle squeeze. You know that term? Uh, If you uh, grew up on a farm, you do. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I looked it up. And a cattle squeeze is made of wood or, or of some sort of metal, and, and you walk, march that cow up in there, and when he's in there, it binds him on all sides. His head goes through a thing, and you kind of lower You don't hurt the animal, but if you want to give him his shots or whatever, you better put him in something like this. There's nowhere for him to go. And that's the word, constrains. Now watch this. The love of Christ constrains me. How about you? What is it that moved Paul? Oh, the things, those things we listed, they didn't move him, but this one did. The love of Christ constrains me. And the last one is this. 
the cross. Galatians 2.20, you're familiar with this verse. I'm crucified with Christ. That's really very interesting. It's like the, the epitome of, of empathy. I put myself on that cross in my mind. I'm, I'm with him there. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the, the life which I live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Excuse me, Paul. <laughs> the, the apostle Paul gave him, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the Lord Jesus rather gave himself for the whole world. John 3.16, right? That's not what Paul's thinking about. He's thinking about what, himself and, and in a good way. And I'm just saying he's internalizing this. And the point is that this moves Paul. He thinks about the cross and it moves him. It's very interesting to me. I talked to a woman the other day who, who eats the Lord's Supper once a year. In their church, that's what they do once a year. Now, we eat the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Now, there's a reason for that. You put the verses together that you know, and this is what you come up with, that they ate it every Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, the Bible says, they, they met and they gave of their means every Sunday, every first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, they came together to eat the Lord's Supper. The the appearance is that the centerpiece of their worship was the Lord's Supper, and they ate it every first day of the week, and so that's why we do it. The argument against that would be that if you eat it every first day of the week, it becomes old to you. We don't want to run that risk. You know, it becomes trite if you eat the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Let me tell you something. I've been eating the Lord's Supper since I was a young teen. There's never one time that it was old to me, including this morning. You want to know what moved Paul? The cross moved him. The cross moved him. There's a sense in which before a man becomes a Christian, he counts the cost. Then there's another sense in which he cannot count the whole cost because he won't know until he dies what in reality, personally to him, it's cost him to be a Christian. When Paul... The apostle lived. He overcame a lot. He had been a persecutor of Christians, a terrible man, and a very powerful man, a very articulate man, a very strong man, a very influential man, great Pharisee. Gave it all up. And then at Miletus, he said to these Ephesian elders, I know that you're worried about me. Let me tell you what I've been going through. And now I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know that, I, that you don't want me to go. I know it's dangerous, and, and I know the Spirit has said that I'm going to have afflictions there, and I'm going to have bonds there. I know that, and I know, but I want you to know that I'm ready to die for him, and none of these things move me. I know that it already has meant that I'm separated, segregated from my contemporaries, and they think I'm just a big fool. None of these things move me, because you know what? I'm following Jesus Christ, and I know what I know that I know. It's not the it's not the book of the month. It's not the book of the year. It's the book of eternity. Where are you going to go? John chapter 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And once you really believe that, these things, though big things in this life, they will not move you. They will not. And I challenge you, I challenge us, that we will emulate the Apostle Paul in this value system, in this, in this weighty perspective of what really matters in life. I wonder if there's someone here this morning who wants to obey the gospel. You ready?
turn loose of both hands and just become a Christian and hold on to him so tightly that you can say, these things will never move me. Repent of your sins and confess the name of Jesus based on your belief, based on your study of Scripture. Confess his name, and today you can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe there's someone here who has done that, but you need the prayers of the Christians, and now would be such a fine time to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.